Welcome to Food Focus, a weekly companion to the Retail Focus podcast. Each show will discuss news, issues, and product releases in the restaurant, fast food, beverage, and grocery industries. Here are your hosts, Trent Kling and Leighton Kling. It's the Food Focus for the last full week in March 2017. We'll talk couple of coffee-based businesses a little bit later on in the show and we'll discuss earnings from Jamba Juice or rather the lack of earnings from Jamba Juice. But we'll begin this week's show by discussing La Madeleine which is a Dallas-based and French-inspired bakery and cafe. They're beginning to turn to a new growth strategy that was revealed earlier this week in the nation's restaurant news. The idea is they want to sell more than half of its corporate-owned stores to fast-track expansion so they can unlock some value from corporate-owned stores, sell those off to franchisees. A little bit of history about La Madeleine. They were founded in 1983. They were sold in 1998 to a group of four investors. And then fast forward to 2001, they were sold to Group La Duff, a privately owned French restaurant conglomerate with over 1,300 restaurants throughout North America and Europe. Obvious synergies there that would make sense considering La Madeleine is a French-inspired bakery cafe. Now, Group La Duff has over a half dozen different banners, all with slightly different menus and offerings. But Leighton at La Madeleine, it's interesting because food is served cafeteria style. A lot of those businesses haven't been having success of late. You think of Luby's as one of those businesses that's been struggling. And they serve across platforms breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Yeah, it's a very interesting concept and one that they're looking to transition. You talk about their Dallas-based locations that have been transitioning from that cafeteria style with a more modern ordering station. This was actually first rolled out not too long ago. So right now you had mentioned the refranchising strategy. They currently have 86 locations throughout the United States, and they've really only seen modest growth through their existence. And over the last several years, you have seen some other new locations emerge in, in new and emerging markets. They had 75 locations just four years ago, to put that in perspective. So in just a little over four years, they've seen a growth of about 11 total locations. Their locations are currently in the south and southwest United States. So it's interesting to see if they're looking to expand in other states or just in a higher concentration within the markets that they currently operate. This comes as an overarching strategy. We've seen some management changes as of late from the parent company. We see a resulting pressure from the lower sales in 2016. Like I said, they've had some modest growth, but they had some sluggish sales in 2016. And now the company has a new CEO for the North American division. Olivier Perot, which is actually the former financial chief at Sodexo North America, was named CEO in January of this year. And his main goal, which he was very transparent about, about since day one was the many growth opportunities he sees for the concepts in the United States for the concept in the United States. So he saw franchising as the number one route to expand the number of locations. Again, 86 locations is a fairly significant amount. We're talking about an operator that has a very specific niche. You wouldn't really see a very large runway for this type of restaurant, but he does see some growth potential. So overall, we've seen a lot of other companies transition to the franchising model over the recent years, most namely with the podcast topics of Wendy's and So we've talked about how they have a higher penetration of franchising strategy in the United States versus their corporate owned locations. So with La Madeleine, we see that they have refranchising efforts with over half of the remaining company owned locations. So about 38 in total. And the company has said most of their refranchising efforts will likely take place outside of their home market of Dallas, Texas. No real need to franchise those stores that are so close to their base group. And one of the things that the company has argued is that even though this has been a slow sales year, they say a lot of people in this casual segment have been experiencing a soft sales year as well. We see a lot of companies reporting same restaurant sales falling by 1% to 2% in this segment, not all businesses and certainly not emerging businesses. That would be my one concern for La Madeleine. If we see, and unfortunately we can't get 
get an insight on too many of their financials because they are privately owned. But if we do happen to see shrinking same-store sales from them, I'm not sure that rapid expansion and selling off locations to bankroll that expansion is a good idea. Now, if you want to sell off locations and turn those over to franchise operators because you think those locations can be more profitable under franchisees and because you think your corporation or your business model is perhaps overextended with so many company-owned stores, that's kind of a different story. They have a number of locations in Houston, Atlanta, as well as Louisiana, which makes sense, of course, a big French influence there, and Washington, D.C. They said they've all been targets for potential operational regime changes or sales off to franchise operators. Now, let's look overall at franchising strategy. Last week on the Food Focus, we spoke of Del Taco looking for stronger relationships with their franchising partners. And what this meant, at least as far as Del Taco was concerned, is partnering with operators that were already deeply familiar with the Del Taco brand and some of the markets where they have a strong presence. Now, we turn our attention to La Madeline and how this might play into La Madeline. They want to approach something similar to that strategy. They're only looking for larger, more experienced operators. Then again, who doesn't only look for larger, more experienced operators when you're seeking to refranchise? But they would like larger operators that are seeking to own multiple stores. Since La Madeline doesn't own hundreds of locations and they don't have an abundance of these long-standing franchise partners that a number of other businesses have, they will have to go through a period of brand awareness and education with area franchisees, but it works for them. If they can find fewer franchisees to own more locations, they don't have to go through this brand education and brand training with so many people. So rather than sell each one of the locations off to an individual franchisee, they're looking for larger owner-operators that are willing to take on more than just one store location and Leighton it seems like they feel like this is the safest way to enter into this mass refranchising program which again is being done so they can collect capital to potentially expand their business further. So management had some really good explanations for this, namely the streamlining of operations. You see that if you have operators that are over an entire market, you can see that operations are going to be a little more streamlined, a little more seamless in the long run. You get some low-level operators in there that may have a lesser customer service experience than these larger operators that already operate other restaurants in similar markets. You may see some problems. And another thing that was mentioned that some analysts were actually pointing to here as to why this was was a very good strategy that they outlined was the fact that you get some low-level operators in there in the same market as maybe some bigger operators and you have some problems because if you want to grow those larger operators are going to be fighting for space with those low-level operators where they might want to expand into a certain area of a certain city and yet there's competition within your own brand and that's never a good thing so I think having this strategy is going to help again not only in supply chain and sourcing and and making sure everything streamlined there, but also with it growing the brand in a responsible fashion. And that is, in fact, what they are trying to do here. So they have experience already acquiring and managing franchisees. So that also helps them. They have about three years of selling off company-owned locations, Trent. Currently, 26 locations are franchised out. But again, this was a very low-level strategy initially, but they're looking to take off now that they have those three years under their belt. And they're really looking towards some similar Similar operators too. We talk about regions in the Southwest. They would really love to have one single operator in several different markets. That would be the ultimate goal here. We talk about growth, but as for the strategy long term, it is a little bit unclear. They didn't say exactly what the runway was for them. However, they said they are leaving it up to the future franchisees to determine where the growth opportunities lie. So that may be a, a very clear reason as to why they're not saying we think there can be five to six hundred additional locations in the United States because they may just not know and they're leaving it up to franchisees to do what they feel is comfortable once they become aware of the brand and how the company operates overall. I find it interesting, though, that they're willing to sell off to franchisees in order to bankroll continued expansion or in part to bankroll continued expansion. You figure you'll see some expansion through the franchisees themselves because one of the things that Poirot mentioned 
during this entire article in Nation's Restaurant News is the fact that they want franchisees to purchase markets rather than individual stores. So if a franchisee purchases the right to, say, the St. Louis, Missouri market, they would ideally, for La Madeleine, open up multiple stores in that particular market after they got the hang of operating the two or three or whatever it is that get established there at first. But again, management is not being clear about exactly how far this restaurant concept can go. And as you mentioned, Leighton, it's kind of a niche concept. I do like the fact that they're moving away from the cafeteria style ordering and moving to more traditional ordering mechanisms for their restaurants. I think it will not take consumer re-education then to open up in new markets because there are some areas in the country where you don't see a whole lot of cafeteria style operators. But time will tell for La Madeline to see if they can turn this either into a massively successful concept or if nothing else, they've turned this into a more hands-off concept where they may not experience all the benefits from increasing same restaurant sales in the future, but at the same time, their hands are kind of washed of any losses those individual stores might be taking as well. Dunkin' Donuts released information on new or updated products they are rolling out in the next two to three months. Some of these products are updates, or as the company hopes, improvements to current menu items, while others are seasonal limited-time offerings. All of this rolled out on their media day of Tuesday of this week, where they made it very clear that they were in the business of evolving and not standing still with their product assortment. We begin with the updates portion of the news release. Perhaps the most notable product update being rolled out by Dunkin' Donuts is their frozen Dunkin' Coffee, which supplants the coffee culotta that they've had a lot of marketing efforts behind in the past. But this isn't the first time within the last calendar year that they've overhauled a cold beverage offering. They began to roll out their cold brew, as we had talked about on the Food Focus, to slowly overtake their previous iced coffee last year. The cold brew had largely positive reviews for its deep taste. However, the frozen Dunkin' coffee is made a little differently. It's going to have coffee extract, which includes instant coffee, which is essentially what Starbucks uses in their frappuccinos. It has ice, liquid cane sugar, which is a simple syrup, and they use that in other drinks, so there's some synergies there, and then dairy. It is customizable with several different syrup and flavor shots, as well as dairy mixers, and by that, we're assuming they either mean half and half, 2%, or the skim optionality there. Their coffee colada comes standard with light cream, so that is not customizable, so that is a difference there between the two drinks. Molly Zimmerman, according to CNBC, was responsible for this product. She is a senior research and development technologist with Duncan. Reportedly, it took her four years to develop this product. Chris Fuca, the senior VP of marketing and consumer insights and product innovation for the company, said our coffee colada isn't good enough. This is a way better product. He said this at the company media day on Tuesday. The basic feel around this product is that it has more of a coffee taste than the previous iteration. And really, the main concept here is more coffee in every sip. So this is a bit of a transition here from those sugary beverages you get at some other competing locations. An interesting take here is that people have gotten used to that sweet blended iced coffee beverages without much of a coffee taste. I, for one, like a a stronger coffee taste within my beverages, so I'm excited for this offering as it gets rolled out. The question is how their present customers are going to react to this product, though, as the company tries to lure customers from outside coffee shops who may be used to the more coffee taste in those espresso shots or the other frappes. I found it interesting, too, that the coffee colada has just 60 milligrams of caffeine a small frappe typically has around 50 to 70 milligrams. So we're assuming here that this new innovation is going to have a bit more caffeine than their coffee colada. I, I certainly would like a higher dose of caffeine in my coffee drink, Trent. And one of the things that we should mention is they're not getting rid of the Culotta line all throughout. The Culotta line is a basically a larger line of iced or blended frozen beverages. And some headlines after their media day read that they were getting rid of the culotta altogether. That's not true. Instead, they're getting rid of the coffee culotta, not the entire culotta line. And as you mentioned, Chris Fuqua said that this drink, this newer 
frozen Dunkin' coffee drink is better than the original coffee culotta. And he also said that they want to contemporize their frozen platform. Before his promotion, Fuqua was the director of strategy at Dunkin', which speaks certainly to the investment in change on the particular drinks. And so one of the things to keep an eye on, as Leighton mentioned, if this has indeed a deeper coffee taste to it, can they convert customers over that might be used to the more sugary frappuccinos, perhaps at Starbucks or the original coffee culotta that maybe got used to not having as much coffee in their particular product. But one thing is for sure, as Leighton mentioned, your typical espresso shot has about 50 to 70 milligrams of caffeine. Their existing frozen drink, the small coffee culotta, has just one six, 16 milligrams of caffeine. So about four times less than your traditionally made frappe that you might get at a local coffee shop. And it does take a long time to develop blended coffee beverages because often Oftentimes, if you were just to throw coffee and dairy into a blender with some sort of syrup, you may not get the correct texture and consistency. So it does take a little while to develop the consistency of your drink, whether that's through the use of xanthan gum or some other additive. And as, as we've mentioned in the past, Starbucks doesn't actually put shots of cold espresso in their frappuccinos, but rather they use a pre-existing powder as the base for those particular drinks. Other updates here include fruited teas, which are additions to their already updated selections of teas. These will be available at the end of March and will include mango pineapple, and blackberry obviously here they're competing directly with starbucks's very popular line and their tivana line that's been one of starbucks's few newer product successes across their entire platform now let's talk about some of their other new menu items and potential inspiration for these and we begin with nitro coffee they mentioned that they are testing out nitro coffee in five restaurants in the northeast now, some articles have been giving Starbucks credit for popularizing nitro coffee. Keep in mind, they only have them usually at certain locations. Most of the Star R locations, for example, have nitro coffee. But nitro has been around for a very long time. Coffee shops on the West Coast have been playing around with this concept for a while. And now you can get nitro coffee at a lot of local establishments. Basically, the idea behind nitro cold brew is that, much like a Guinness, for example, in the beer industry, or a similar nitro package product this is essentially your traditional dunkin donuts cold brew with nitrogen forced back during the process of tapping they have taps in these five restaurants that are testing this product out so this creates a silky mouthfeel for the end consumer and it creates an even head usually tan colored atop the drink for the cold brew so it's been very popular in part because of that mouthfeel. They did, during Media Day, it mentioned vague plans to expand the test soon, but there is no timetable for national adoption. And we should mention it will be difficult for them to adopt this nitro cold brew nationally because you have to install taps so not only are you changing the hardware in your individual stores but you have to also ensure that you find a way to access a steady nitrogen supply also across all your stores so it's really impactful on the back end you can probably only do it in most of your larger square footage locations or your higher traffic locations to make things worthwhile because it would be a massive capital expenditure so i'm not sure that we're going to see it across the country just yet considering they poured a lot of capital into developing cold brew drinks across their nationwide platform just this last year. One other thing that they came out with involving cold brew, and this was actually introduced just earlier this month, is their sweet and salted cold brew. And it's got overall a little bit of a salted caramel flavor to it, but salted caramel certainly in the popularity of that particular flavor is the base for this. We see a lot of sweet and salty generally in some of their new product developments. Now, as we mentioned, this is a spring limited time offer, and they introduced a press campaign around this. What they use is the same liquid cane sugar that we talked about earlier with the prior frozen coffee beverage that they're working on, and they use that to sweeten up their typical cold brew 
And then to the top of this, they add what they call a proprietary salted whipped topping. So it's not just a salt shaker atop the whipped topping. The salt is actually worked into the whipped topping, which is interesting for this particular beverage. And again, Starbucks had some success with the vanilla cream cold brew last year, but some of their LTOs surrounding cold brew in December and January didn't work out so well. Given that this is a spring beverage for Dunkin' Donuts, you could see how this might have a little bit more success as an LTO as some of the things that Starbucks have rolled out. But it's tough to see this continue at all for a long stretch because one of the things this is forcing on a restaurant level is the idea behind keeping this salted whip separate from their traditional whip, which they use a lot of. So it requires staff training, certainly, but also separate containers, and it takes up refrigerator space. So something to keep in mind there. Elsewhere, in terms of cold beverages, they're rolling out a Dunkin' Energy Punch at the end of March. They tested this out in a few markets, including the Florida market. And basically what this is, is this is a culotta slush with a full can of Monster Energy integrated into it. You can see very clearly that their basis for this drink, convenience store energy slushes. You see them just about every convenience store you go to, whether it's co-branded with Monster or Red Bull, or in the case of a C-store operator like Quick Trip, for example, where they have their own proprietary energy drink. This is basically where they're getting this idea from. You have strawberry and blue raspberry flavors, and they referred to it as a secret menu item before. I'm not sure how easy it would have been for them to make a secret menu item. It's not like you're just mixing syrups together. So I'm not sure how much I buy that. But one of the interesting things is this doesn't fit into their increasingly artisanal brand image. They want to go further and further towards that artisanal brand image. We talked about their salted whipped topping in the last drink. This is more like something Taco Bell would offer, so I am a little bit concerned with brand image here. And then one more drink offering before we get to the food offerings, and Leighton will have those for you, is the Caramel Shaved Ice Espresso. And I think this is the drink of all of the drinks that they're releasing and all of these new updates that they're releasing that may make the most waves throughout the coffee industry. What you have is shaved ice with cold espresso poured over the top of it. And although some news outlets are saying that it's shaved ice topped espresso shots, that's not really the case. It looks to be the other way around. And then you have caramel drizzle topped with whipped cream, the traditional whipped cream, not the salted whipped cream in this case. And the genesis for this, you might guess, would be from combo shaved ice and coffee stands. But again, this is a highly, highly unique beverage in terms of the overall coffee or quick service restaurant category. And I think this is something to keep an eye on as far as Starbucks or other large coffee chains may be co-opting at some point in the future. Shaved ice as a whole has become more popular. It is different or it's differentiated from your traditional snow cone and that your snow cone is typically gritty, whereas the shaved ice will have a softer texture. It's got a better mouthfeel. And they mentioned that beyond just the addition of caramel to it, it can be customized with an additional syrup shot to sweeten up the espresso and shaved ice. So you can go hazelnut, vanilla, or chocolate there. They tested it in Maine and Florida, and there are issues with adopting it nationwide. But again, it looks like that's where Duncan is going with this. They did not mention specific plans to roll this out. But most locations, it's kind of tough to manage your shaved ice in some of these locations. And it's different from what they would offer in a culotte. So you might have issues with adopting this on the back end still. This could be a game changer for the coffee QSR industry. Moving on to the food, we have pretzel croissant breakfast sandwich, which is basically a regular croissant sandwich that adds a pretzel topping to it. If you look at some of the pictures that were released from the sandwich, you can see that it's basically a normal white cheddar and egg sandwich with a pretzel croissant. It has a butter topping, and overall, you see that the pretzel there is really to enhance the texture, give it a little bit of crunch, which is an interesting take. It's something that you really haven't seen as far as a food innovation in a breakfast sandwich. So I am curious to see how that pans out for the company. Next, we have a chocolate pretzel donut, which is just that. You have a conventionally glazed chocolate donut that's topped with caramel and crushed pretzels. You get, again, a little bit of the texture there on a conventional donut. And then you also have that sweet caramel flavor to add to that. 
But I am curious to see if they're if they're really looking at something here in the pretzel market because that really has been a source of innovation from the food side of things as of late. Talk about donuts, breakfast sandwiches, anywhere they can put a pretzel, they're going to do it. Also, peanut butter delight croissant donut. This is something that is in their popular line of croissant donuts and really just an extension of that. And you see here, they rolled out a Boston cream croissant as a limited time offering last winter. So uh, this is more of a limited time offering that they're just trying out. You know, I had mentioned the chocolate pretzel donut. This is really in an attempt to expand the product offering in the donut sector. We're talking about Dunkin' Donuts, which has been around for many years. And obviously their two niches are donuts and coffee. But here you see they're really taking some inspiration from some other donut operators in Hertz Donut and Voodoo Donuts that are really known for having some different mashups that combine sweet and salty. So I think this is something that they're looking towards really drawing those customers in that have looked at Dunkin' Donuts previously as just a normal donut operator that really don't offer a very broad selection. These limited time offerings are certainly going to help boost traffic in the short term, but but it gives the sense that they really are trying to extend their brand into one that does evolve and innovate with time. Yeah, you mentioned Hertz Donuts and Voodoo Donuts as well. Hertz currently sits at 13 locations. They're a little bit more of a regionalized chain in the Midwest and South. They have locations ranging from Arizona and Texas upward to Wisconsin, but they have two more locations set to open in the next few months, and it's a possibility that they'll expand past the 20 mark by the end of the year. They've grown 200% in the last two years, and Voodoo Donuts is perhaps the more nationally known chain, even though they have fewer locations. They started in Portland, Oregon, but they received a lot of press nationally from places like the Travel Channel, for example, and Food Network. They now have seven locations, and they are eyeballing more. They have their furthest expansion in the U.S. in Texas and Colorado, but also they have a location in Taiwan. So when we bring this all together in conclusion, we talk about Duncan's LTOs a lot on the show. We talk about their product development a lot on the show as well. It seems like just about every four to five months, we're talking about something else that Duncan is implementing or has come up with. And when you compare and contrast them to Starbucks, which, as you'd figure, is probably their closest competitor, Starbucks has really struggled with their seasonality of some of their limited time offers. We talked about recently them offering the spiced cream cold brew back in December. That limited time offer didn't go as well as they would have thought. Heard from a number of those in the Starbucks organization on a regional level that sales of that limited time offering and that seasonal product were far down from seasonal products it had in the past. So they took a chance with a cold drink in winter and it didn't work out. And then also when they released their Pokemon themed Frappuccino last year, it was also much later into the year. So they're having struggles with seasonality right now. And when you look at Duncan as a contrast, I see it as a good sign. At this media day, their brand marketing manager, Anthony Bonatatabas, said that they're always thinking about what's going to be the next big thing in coffee because they can't rest on their laurels. And I think that's an excellent sign. Now, you hear the same thing from Starbucks, too, but you also see innovation be a little bit more limited because they have three tiers of stores. Some of their innovations come out to the top end stores, so like the roastery stores, for example, or the Star R stores, and you don't end up seeing them in your traditional Starbucks stores, whereas Duncan seems to have a larger commitment to roll out not only these limited time offers, but these innovative drinks to more of their stores throughout the country than Starbucks has. As an aside, earlier this month, also Duncan, along with Baskin Robbins, announced a campaign to remove artificial colorings from their U.S. menus by 2018. We spoke of their efforts to simplify ingredients on their breakfast sandwiches as well back in 2016. So this all shows their drive towards continuous improvement here. As more and more operators are showing transparency in sourcing. Quick peek at the company's stock price. They recently just hit an all-time high of $57 per share. We believe that's reflective on the company's energy and the company's willingness to constantly innovate. Dunkin' Donuts shares are up 20 6% for the trailing 12 months. We stay in the vein of drink innovation, and as we continue, we talk about 
Keurig Company and K-Cups. They were a major innovator and market disruptor several years ago. We've spoken about their impact on the coffee industry and even into the savory beverage industry with soups and broths. And now we have a potential for, I'm not sure what, beer K-Cups or liquor K-Cups or mixed beverage K-Cups because of a recently announced partnership between Keurig and Anheuser-Busch InBev. Now, it remains to be seen exactly what product or what line the two companies are working on, but this is a notable partnership because these two companies are market leaders. Anheuser-Busch InBev of late has grown through acquisition, hence the name. You've got two total hyphens in that name. They're now in control of 28% of the global beer market, according to a report by Euromonitor, and they're on track to have over 60 billion dollars in sales in 2017. Keurig Green Mountain, meanwhile, was bought by Germany's JAB Holdings, which is a privately owned conglomerate in December of 2015 for $13.9 billion. JEB also owns Caribou Coffee Company, a company that is in direct competition with Dunkin' Donuts that we talked about earlier, as well as Pete's Coffee and Tea through an acquisition in 2012. The North American coffee K-cup market is said to be around $6.5 billion. And in case you're wondering why the purchase price was so steep, one of the potential reasons JEB bought Keurig at that valuation was the opportunity for growth in global markets. North America at the time of the buyout was 40% of the entire global K-Cup market. So, Leighton, that brings us to this joint venture. What possibly could these two companies be working on together? Yeah, here you have two massive companies in their respective segments here. You have Anheuser-Busch that you said grew around 30% of the global beer market last year. And here you have Keurig, who is the market leader in the United States for K-Cups. And they've been trying to innovate. They had an innovation a year ago with a cold soda rollout, yet that did not work. We'll speak to that a little bit later, but right now, this joint venture appears to have one end goal trend, and that is an in-home alcohol drink system. And so this partnership was actually first announced by Keurig in January, but speculation has picked up as to what that exactly means and what that may mean for the beer market overall. The partnership and the creation of this idea has recently actually grown on social media. Several outlets have been talking about it, and Maxim had a head that said K-Cups for beer would be the greatest invention of the decade. Again, it's not exactly clear that it's going to be beer that they're going to be focused on and that you have the potential of mixed drink offerings and cocktails and things of that nature as well. Anything in the alcohol industry. Research and development will be taking place largely in the U.S., however, despite Keurig's German ownership, Keurig's facilities in Massachusetts and Vermont will house the R&D for this operation. In a quote from Bob Gamcourt, the Keurig CEO, they said, We are excited to partner with AB InBev and to develop a new system for the adult beverage category. We look forward to combining our capabilities and technologies and deliver innovation for our customers. Honestly, Trent, there's two words we can draw from that statement. One is innovation and two is technology. So really with Keurig, you have a technology company that was able to revolutionize and take a lot of market share from the ready-to-drink industry. And so here you have these types of innovations that can either be seen as major disruptors in a major industry or a type of novelty with only minor mature adoption rates in the long term. So here you can see that it definitely at least has a niche following as you have several other companies that are crowdfunding some similar concepts out there. But overall, Trent, that is the major question here. What is their end goal and how big of the piece of the beer pie or the cocktail pie are they going to be able to take from the current industry staples? The good news for them is that this industry is growing already, so they don't need an enormous slice of the pie, or in the case of Anheuser-Busch InBev, a larger slice of the pie to make somewhat of an impact. A lot of news releases around this have called this a potential disruptor, and that's a term we throw around an awful lot. We call people that raise a lot of venture capital disruptors without actually seeing proof of concept or an end product. And I would say pump our brakes a little bit on the term disruption. I 
think this probably remains a novelty. And as I think this through, I think it does have more legs when it comes to cocktails or ready-to-drink cocktails than it does in the beer industry. And as I break this down, one of the things that they said, and as Leighton mentioned, they want to create an in-home alcohol drink system. We don't know what that's going to look like, but they did mention that as their end goal. But the key is in the beer industry, cost is going to be a big issue for the end user here. Now, if they can find a way to simulate tap beer in a home-based setting, that would be for the best, as many people would agree that tap beer is probably going to taste better. It's going to have a different mouthfeel, certainly, than bottled and canned beer. There are people that disagree with that, certainly, and there is nothing that is certain across the beer industry and that one thing is always better than the other, and so on and so forth. You get the idea, but cost is going to be the key issue here. You have to be able to provide the end user a product that's better than what's already on the market for providing tap beer at home, while at the same time providing something that is more inexpensive for that end user to use. It may still be a premium over canned or bottled beer because, again, there is that aura around tap beer, but they have a very slim window in which to work. And when we look at cost, if a person wanted to, they could probably put together, if they cared that much about beer and making sure they could get tapped beer in their home, they could put together a kegerator for maybe $200 or $250. I personally have a kegerator at my house. Listeners of the podcast, longtime listeners of the podcast, know that I do enjoy beer and different types of beer. I bought my kegerator for $250. It was a pretty decent branded kegerator as well. Most of the decent models on the market are four dollars to $500 today as you look around there. Now, you could get absolute top-of-the-end models for well into four figures, but most of your household decent better than average models are going to be four to five hundred dollars so whatever the consumable product is on anheuser-busch InBev's side would have to be cheaper than keg beer which isn't super likely given the high cost already of k-cups compared to regular coffee and on the other side their equipment would have to be cheaper than a kegerator and co2 tank and that type of thing and right now their keurig hot 2.0 k475 plus it comes with an SRP of $149.99. You figure probably an at-home alcohol drink system would come with a slightly higher price point than that. And if we're talking here about a potential at-home brewery system, a lot of those already exist for a lower price point than that particular number. So they're dealing with a very slim area in which they could fit into the marketplace. So that's why I don't know that they want to disrupt the industry too much. And keep in mind, Anheuser-Busch InBev already profits majorly off of this industry to begin with. So they probably don't want to throw a wrench in their own industry too much more. But it's interesting because, Leighton, you mentioned Keurig's failed soda machine. And this technology that they're talking about may come out of that failure. Yeah, it said that a lot of the technology that was built into that cold soda machine, and again, cold with a K there, it was very unsuccessful. They had rolled out this cold soda machine, and it was actually discontinued by the summer of last year, June, I believe it was, of 2016. And this, we talk about upfront costs here, $369 for the machine. That's the upfront fixed cost, and each soda cup was around a dollar each. So you're talking about a lot of upfront cost, and then again, a K-cup that costs $1 versus something that you could buy in the store for about 50 to 60 cents in a can of soda. It just didn't make sense for the consumer, and it became more of a novelty, and then it fizzled out very quickly. And so with this, Trent, you drew a lot of good comparisons between what they've done in the past to what they can maybe do in the beer industry. You're looking at people that may go to the store and buy a 12 or 18 pack of beer. They're not really going to be paying $400 in upfront cost and then paying a more per item cost if each beer K cup, let's say, costs a dollar or more. So a lot of things here to analyze from the consumer perspective. But you had mentioned a very 
big opportunity as far as the cocktail segment goes. You have uh, Anheuser-Busch, who really doesn't have a very large presence in the cocktail industry. I tried to look on their website, and really the only offering they have even tailored towards anything within the industry is some cocktail recipes that they've made. So I think this is a really big opportunity for them to upend this market. We've seen the market dwindle as of late. There's been a lot of competition. We talk about drink mixes. Anybody can make a drink mix. So if you're able to come in with something that's perfected, again, they're spending a lot of R&D dollars and a lot of time trying to perfect whatever they're looking at here in the alcohol segment. But if they can get something to upend that industry, I think that is going to be something that could have some implications as far as maybe some low-level bartenders could use it. And again, a more of a niche market even with that. But analysts have said there is a bigger market opportunity for Keurig overall. This really isn't a beer play, analysts don't think. Like you had said, they really don't want to upend their own industry. We've talked about how big Anheuser-Busch is in the alcohol industry. They don't really want to have something that is a major disruptor, no matter how profitable it is. There's no way that it can reach the level that they are currently at. So I think for Keurig, this is an opportunity and a partnership that sees a lot of open space. Again, they try to have a lot of opportunity with the soda innovation, and that didn't pan out. So they're always looking for something that they can utilize their technology, their patented technology with, and create a new market opening. So I think there is a lot of interesting things with that, and they certainly have the financial capability to spend whatever they need to with this innovation. We talk about these two massive companies. JAB is a company that primarily focuses on investment of emerging companies. And so I'm sure they're putting some cash behind this investment here. One other thing to keep in mind, above and beyond that which you mentioned already about the drink mix industry or the cocktail industry, is the fact that InBev does have holdings in Best Damn Brewing Company, which you might recognize from Best Damn Root Beer and Best Damn Apple Ale. And of late, things like fruit ales or ciders, as well as hard root beers and hard sodas, have been taking off here domestically in the United States. Sales of those products are continually going up. And we've seen even success in the past from a number of Smirnoff brand extensions in that same category. So potentially it's not even a drink mix or a cocktail industry so much as it is just a sweet alcohol industry. But I agree. And one thing you mentioned, the person going to the store for an 18-pack or a 24-pack, especially of what you would consider domestic beer of Bud Light or, or Miller Light, probably doesn't care that much about their beer to spend $400 in upfront costs to ensure that they get the quality of tap beer at home. Now, again, you don't want to generalize, but typically that's probably not going to be the consumer you're marketing to. So I'll be anxious to see what they come up with here. And I know there's a lot of people throughout the industry that has their eyes firmly fixed on what Keurig and Anheuser-Busch InBev come up with. We'll transition to an earnings story, our sole earnings story, or actually what turned it into a fourth quarter update this week is Jamba Juice issued an extension on financials with the SEC. In a rare occurrence, Jamba was forced to file a notification of late filing with the SEC because of quote, a delay in completing the company's financial statements. So no earnings per share numbers for the fourth quarter or the full year fiscal 2016. However, again, they did issue some guidance on some of their numbers as it relates to the fourth quarter and overarching 2016. First, a little bit about the company. It was started by Kirk Perrin in 1990 as the Juice Club. At the time, they had 2,600 customers in their first weekend. They currently have over 900 locations across the world. That's including all of their banners. And really, they've had a lot of steady expansion over the past 5 to 10 years. The last available presentation from 2007 indicated annual unit volume at the time was $771,000. So not too bad for a juice company. Company. You see that the average unit volume is now 650000 approximately. Their long-term goal, however, is back up to that $700,000 range. Their long-term goal is between $700,000 and $750,000 brought in per unit. So again, they are really struggling here to bring sales. And I think this shows that the company overall is failing to bring in sales or at least meet own company expectations. And that could be a reason for the delay here as they get their financials in order for this latest release. Their average square footage per store is about 1,000 to 1,200 square feet. 
as of their last quarterly release, 69 stores were company-owned, 759 were franchisee-owned in the United States, and all 68 international stores were franchisee-owned. So typically you'll see that any company that has a lot of international presence or even a minor international presence, take for instance Shake Shack, will usually license or franchise those stores. They sold off a lot of stores in 2013 and 2014, and now, Trent, it looks as though they're not able to meet their company expansion goals for this next fiscal year. Yeah, they've tailored back a couple of their expansion goals, and overall, they talk in this release, as in past releases, about some of the bright spots for the company, including the fact that they've expanded rapidly. But really, the expansion isn't with net openings so much as just standardized openings. When you look at their net openings, the numbers aren't quite as impressive. They've opened stores more rapidly of late, certainly, with 27 openings in the fourth quarter that, again, we don't have earnings per share numbers for just yet. Nine of those are international stores. They opened up 75 locations in fiscal year 2016 overall. 56 of those were in the U.S., 19 international. And of those 75, they've got 10 express stores, which are as you might expect, smaller Jamba Juice locations, they don't do as high of a unit volume. Leighton talked about their current unit volume sitting around 650000 Those express stores do significantly less than that. 65 of those stores that they've opened this year were full line. Overall, in terms of total number of stores, they opened up a higher number of stores this year than they had either one of the last two years. However, that's not talking about net openings. So when you look at net openings, you have to factor in store closures. They closed 54 full-line stores during the last fiscal year and five express stores. So really, when you look at net full-line store openings, they had 11 during fiscal year 2016, which lags behind their 22 net full-line openings in 2015 and the 14 and 2014. So all of this is, is to say, as Leighton mentioned, they're struggling to meet their overall growth numbers. And above and beyond that is that they're struggling to meet their own growth numbers on a per-store basis. As system-wide comparable store sales decreased 2.2%, with company-owned stores declining faster at 2.5% than franchisees, which were right at that 2.2% mark in terms of a decline. They do go out of their way to mention that their comps exceeded the most recent NapTrack Fast Casual benchmark for quarter four by 0.8% and traffic by 0.2%. But again, you're dealing with fractions of a percentage here. And it's interesting that they note this almost as a way to reference softness in the industry overall. But really what they did was basically just cite a statistic that's almost so small that it's not statistically significant whatsoever. Basically, it's just saying they're more or less declining at the exact same rate as others in the fast casual industry. But I would mention to listeners that it's important to note that not all fast casual chains participate in this metric. Malcolm Knapp only issues data Back to those that participate in this. Usually those that subscribe to his program are larger operators. He estimates participation at about 88% of the top 200 restaurant operators in the United States. But that participation number is much lower for Upstart. So it doesn't capture an entire picture of what you've got overall in the restaurant industry. And one of the things Leighton and I have mentioned in the past, especially in the fast casual industry, that you're seeing shrinking same restaurant sales for some of the legacy operators or for some of the longer term operators in this space, where you're seeing some other operators just explode in terms of same restaurant sales, even though those are smaller operators. So those smaller operators, for the most part, aren't included in that particular metric. Their full year comps were down 0.2%. And what this tells me is that they struggled once again with seasonality in quarter four. As you notice, the much larger same store sales decline or same restaurant sales decline in the fourth quarter than the rest of the year, which actually saw an increase. This is an on-again, off-again theme overall with Jamba Juice. They did have solid comps in the fourth quarter of last fiscal year. They had a 3.9% gain over fiscal year 14 and fiscal year 15. But they have mentioned in the past that seasonality is an issue. And if you go back a decade or more, they said the key to overcoming seasonality in their business, open up warm weather locations, open up locations on college campuses, and open up locations in indoor malls. What have we been talking about on Retail Focus? 
smaller mall traffic numbers. So potentially, indoor mall locations and the fact that mall traffic is declining may have actually hurt their quarter four comps over one year ago. Now, no explanation necessarily if they saw a shrink back in warm weather markets, but at least mall traffic numbers we can recognize might be hindering them somewhat. And they also cited heavy rainfall in their larger West Coast markets as a reason for people not coming out to Jamba Juice. So we've talked about their expansion. We've talked about their desires to expand in the future. And it's funny, you look back to 2007 and that release that Leighton mentioned, that presentation that Leighton mentioned, where their unit sales were about 100,000 more per unit than they are today. They saw white space such that they could open up 5,000 stores globally. And I think that really says something about where the brand is at, the fact that we are only now getting to 900 stores with Jamba Juice. Trent, you mentioned how they had cited heavy rainfall on their larger West Coast markets. Those West Coast markets are the decent areas as far as weather is concerned, so less of a seasonality effect. However, that really doesn't explain their long-term revised guidance. We talk about how the company is hurting, and potentially it is the overarching strategy of where they are placing their locations. Anytime you see a lot of consistent store closings, which you will and are with Jamba Juice, it's not a good sign for the company. Each one of those closings costs the company a lot of money, and you see that as their liquidity has actually diminished. The company held $7.1 million in cash and cash equivalents as of January 3rd of this year. This compares to almost $20 million in cash and cash equivalents this time last year. So not a very good liquidity position for the company. Is Again, it costs a lot of money. Anytime you break a lease, you're going to have to pay the landlord and then also you have the cost of closing associated with transferring employees or giving employees severance packages and the like so as of 2017 guidance we see that revised revenue guidance is coming in two to three million dollars less than their previously guided terms this is not a good sign for the company in those same store sales you were talking about trent those annual system-wide comparable sales they're now flat to slightly positive whereas it was previously 2 to 4% positive. So a lot of lack of momentum here with this company. You see a lot of increased competition. But again, it may just be the strategy. Are they marketing correctly? Are they opening the newer locations in good areas? Those locations that they're opening now, are they only going to open them now to then have to close them in five to six years as they are with other locations? Their non-GAAP adjusted general and administrative expenses are actually in line with expectations. However, they don't include a lot of these one-time expenses in these metrics. You see that all the one-time store closing costs were not actually included so far in their preliminary guidance for these 2016 results. So a lot of problems for this company as you see revenues decline, traffic is soft, and they're really having a very big lack of direction for the company. But again, I think a lot of it has to do with competition in their arena. And then also you talk about continued competition with pre-bottled juices and the like. That's correct. They're facing stiff competition, not only from other smoothie bars, but also from continued growth of refrigerated pre-bottled juices like Bold House, Naked, or Odwalla. Also, they're at risk of losing some of their licensed holdings on college campuses, which, as I've mentioned before, they see less of a seasonal-based fall-off around. And some student centers across the country, when they renovate, they are eliminating the smoothie bar because oftentimes they have a distribution deal with one soda maker or another. And so when you have someone like Naked, for example, they're owned by Pepsi. If a school has a contract with Pepsi, they just might see pressure from Pepsi to maybe pivot away from the smoothie bar and instead provide a cooler full of Naked juices there for the consumer rather than the Jamba juice. Shares of Jamba are down nearly 40% over the last two years, currently trading around 9.50 per share. They did go down severely after this update on Monday. 
when they began trading back around their IPO in 2005, they started the cost basis around $35 per share. So that is a pretty significant decrease. A couple of quick notes. One is they figure on seeing a substantial cash hit because of the exit of their Jamba Go concept, which basically was structured very much like a frozen yogurt bar. It was self-serve in fashion. And another quick note, they appointed Joe Thornton as COO this month. He previously had experience at Starbucks as VP of U.S. licensed stores for over a decade. So he brings in a lot of experience. He also spent 14 years at Blockbuster, which I think was interesting that they included that in the press releases things didn't turn out so well for blockbuster during that time about a decade ago in a last special edition story on this food focus we have a quick follow-up to a story we discussed last week it appears that shop house did in fact get someone to take over their leases in all 15 locations that they had closed at the end of last week it was announced this week BB Bop Asian Grill will be taking over the spaces and will convert them by the start of the summertime. They said the transition will actually begin in about two to three weeks. So in April, they'll look to transition. And then in June or July, they'll open these locations. These locations existed, again, in, in very metropolitan locations, very high rent locations. So this is really a good sign for Shop House or Chipotle, which was the parent of the Shop House concept, because they won't have to pay a lot of the break lease fees that you would typically see. The chain is very new. Is BB Bop looking to expand from their 2013 emergence on the scene? They currently have about 12 units right now inside the United States with one under development. So about 13 they'll have by the time they open these 15 locations. They are wholly owned by Gosh Enterprises, which owns Charlie's Philly Steaks. And overall, you look at their concept trend here. It's a Korean cuisine design, really similar to Chipotle and what they had offered with Shop House. Their dinners start with rice. They're made up of different meats and tofu, and they offer a variety of vegetables and different sauces you can put on your meal. Overall, the company was very excited to be taking over these leases, and they said this is an opportunity they really did not see coming, and they're able to expand their concept over twofold. So this is going to be interesting to see how this plays out. But again, I think this is a win-win for all parties. They were probably able to get a little bit of a deal coming into these locations that already had leases agreements. So this is a good thing for Chipotle. This is a good thing for Bibibop. And this is a good thing for the local operator from that commercial property. So this is a very good thing all the way around. And not to mention, they probably won't have to procure a lot of the equipment inside of these locations. Typically, when a large operator exits, they leave a lot of the equipment behind. You see that as KFC closes some locations and transitions to newer models, they usually leave their equipment behind. So this is a plus for an operator that is very similar in the concept. All right, well, we wrap up today's Food Focus podcast by each talking about one thing that we ate between Leighton and I that's new to the world of food or, in some cases, drank that's new to the world of beverages. And we begin with Leighton. Upon shopping at my local Costco, I, I decided that I needed to learn how to cook. So this isn't really <laughs> cooking at its finest, but Kodiak Cakes protein-filled pancakes or something that I purchased. This is something similar to a Bisquick. So this caught my attention because you can just add water and if you would choose to, you can also add milk, but you can just make the mixture and then put it on like you would another pancake mix. But overall, it did catch my eye because it is protein-packed and that one serving of this pancake mix is 14 grams of protein, yet only two grams of fat. And then if you look at the ingredients, another thing that caught my eye was it's not all natural, but it is mostly natural. As the first ingredient is 100% whole grain wheat flour followed by 100% whole grain oat flour and then the protein mix which is largely made up of protein isolate and whey protein concentrate so this is something that actually tasted very good what I did was I added vanilla and a little bit extra brown sugar to give it some more taste it had a little bit of a plain taste without this but again something that was very easy to make and was really not time consuming at all. I talk about the need to cook and learning how to cook, but this really wasn't how cooking a meal would typically be when you look at it in terms of time. It only cost me about 10 minutes in total, but the price point is also something that is very attractive. You can get a small package of these at Target. For instance, they're selling them online right now for $4.99. This comes in a 20 ounce container for that price point. And if you look, that has about 11 servings per container. So I think you could feed a family for a fairly cheap price point. 
All right, well, I tried out a beverage, and to give you a little backstory, in my spare time, I'm a sports broadcaster. I got contracted out to broadcast some games in Kansas City, Missouri at the NAIA National Basketball Championships, and it was a fantastic time. They put on a great tournament, and the NAIA has a sponsorship deal with a business called Body Armor Super Drink, and what it is, it's a sports drink that has electrolytes, vitamins, like a number of other sports drinks. But it's got a larger amount of vitamins, in fact, 100% of your daily value of vitamin B6 and vitamin B12, as well as coconut water. And they make a big deal out of the fact that all the flavors are natural, no artificial flavors, no artificial colors, and that type of thing. Now, at 70 calories per serving, there's two servings per bottle. I actually tried out the strawberry banana version, but it comes in multiple different versions, including fruit punch and orange mango were the other ones that they had there. And honestly, in theory, healthier sports drink, it wasn't as sweet and salty, I would say, as your Powerade, your Gatorade, that type of thing. But it had like this off green flavor from the coconut water that was slightly off-putting. And it also left some starchiness in the back of the throat, which I know is an odd complaint for a sports drink. I couldn't tell you what the SRP is because it's not distributed where I live. And in fact, distribution of body armor is a little bit limited currently as they begin to roll it out nationwide. But it is something to look out for. Perhaps if I tried a different flavor, I would have a better opinion of it. But overall, it tasted less sweet, less salty than your generic sports drink and a little bit more green, but not anything special to write home about. I do want to give a shout out to Twitter listener Ted, who mentioned that he went to Schlotsky's recently, tried out the chicken salad wrap with no dressing. He said it was $8.75. Fantastic, tasty, and very healthy feeling. And it's something that he tried out. And so that might be what I try next week. But a big thanks to him for offering that recommendation. For Layton, I'm Trent. So long for this week's edition of Food Focus. When we return later this week on Retail Focus, we'll talk about boutique retailer Francesca's, who just released a fantastic earnings report earlier this week. So long until then. This has been the Food Focus Podcast. As always, we may have a position in or against companies we discuss on the podcast. Do not invest in stocks solely on the input of the podcast hosts. For more information or for past podcast episodes, visit us online at retailfocuspodcast.com. Also, follow us on Twitter at The Food Focus for news in the restaurant, fast food, beverage, and grocery industries.